Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34 is what we'll be this morning. Verse 21. And he said to them, Jesus, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who does, has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts, it, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a, mustard, a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of, on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes, a, becomes larger than the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And they were able to hear it. But he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately in his own, with his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would, um, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We want to see Jesus this morning. I pray, Christ, that you would be exalted above everything else in our hearts and in our minds I ask God that you would, um, you would absolutely reveal to us Jesus. It's such a mystery when the gospel is preached and your word is taught and your Bible is read that sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't, and it's a mystery. And we ask God that you would give us eyes to see today. We need to hear from you, Lord. And I, I really believe there's people in here that need to hear from you, that might, might be searching for God all over this city, searching for you in everything. I pray that you would make yourself known today. Would you reveal yourself to us, Lord? I pray that you would use me. Would you anoint my lips and my mind and my heart to be faithful to your word today? Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been studying the book of Mark here uh, on Sunday mornings for several weeks now, uh, actually several months now, and we've been looking into who Jesus really is in the book of Mark, who Jesus really is, not, not a Jesus that's uh, recast or reconstructed by history or even by the church, but the real Jesus and the often raw Jesus in the book of Mark. And Jesus broke onto the scene in Mark chapter 1 like this. In Mark chapter 1 verse 15 it says this. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is how Jesus comes and announces his kingdom. He comes on the scene saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Everybody, repent. And believe in the gospel. In the kingdom of God, God's awaited arrival, his long-awaited inbreaking into human time and space was at hand in Jesus. And Jesus said that it is here. The kingdom of God is here now. The kingdom of God was finally here. But what is it? If it's here, then what is it? If the kingdom of God, if we're going to say this this morning, the, if I was to tell you the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here right now in the city, in the Bay Area, and you would go, well, what is it and what does it look like? 
And here's the kingdom defined. We defined this maybe three months ago. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new, unprecedented age of blessing, prosperity, and joy. This is what the people of God held to. The people of God were waiting and hoping for the day when God would break into their situation and save them. That's what they were hoping for. I mean, have you ever had that thought in your own life where no matter how maybe petty or important, where you've had this real thought in your mind, God, help me. Would you, and it could be so simple, like mundane. Like it could be like you trying to find a job, that simple. Or you trying to find salvation or fulfillment in this life. Or you just feeling like, I just kind of want to end it all. And then you just kind of whisper in the back of your head, oh God, save me. Oh God, help me. Please, please help God. Now times that by a whole nation and times that by generations and generations and add to that an eschatological weight where the people of God had hoped that God would bring all of their suffering and all of their oppression to an end and make all things new. This was their hope, and it was compiled by generations of generations, promises and prophets and prophecies that the Messiah would come and end it all suffering, all of it. And their hope was that God would heal the whole world, and the whole world would be under the rule of God and under the reign of God and under the domain of God. This is what the kingdom of God meant to them. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, it meant something to them. And we said this before, too, that it was both spiritual and spatial. It was both spiritual and spatial. Their hope was spiritual. They thought the power of sin would be destroyed when Messiah came on the scene, when God would break in. The power of sin would be destroyed. The enemy, Satan, would be disarmed, and all people would worship God. That's what they hoped for. But it was also, it wasn't just spiritual, it was spatial. It had to do with time and space. The world would not know poverty and hunger anymore. That's what they had hoped. Oppressive governments would be brought down. So it was economic and it was political. The world would not know famine or deprivation and all animals would get along. That was one of their hopes as well. So it was environmental. So the environmental things that happened in our week and in our world from week to week, they were hoping that all this would be eradicated as well when Messiah came, when the kingdom of God broke in. I remember on Easter, we read that story in Luke about those two guys on the road to Emmaus. And it was after Jesus was violently killed and buried, some of the disciples started to walk away from Jerusalem, and then Jesus showed up right in their midst and started to look at their faces, and they were super sad. And Jesus was like, why are you guys so sad? And they were like, um, hello, where have you been? Jesus, who was a man, a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and our own people handed him over to Rome and they killed him and crucified him and he's in the grave and this is what they said in verse 21 in chapter in chapter 24 of Luke but we had hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel we had all our hopes in Jesus we looked at him he was supposed to redeem us bring in the kingdom of God and Israel like the rest of humanity was waiting for their redeemer their savior their hero their prince they had hoped that God would bring in his kingdom and smash all other oppressive and unjust kingdoms to powder. Now, we've all had this thought from time to time that something has to be done about everything that oppresses us, everything that oppresses humanity, 
everything that enslaves, every person who runs, who sex trafficked and who abused their wives, who abandoned their kids, people who try to wipe out whole people groups and nations. There's something that has to be done. And the answer for the Jewish people was the kingdom of God is going to break in. So you can imagine the buzz around Jesus as he started and he stirred up and he began proclaiming and preaching on the scene by saying, hey, the kingdom of God that everybody's waiting for, it's here. It's at hand. It's in me. And the people started gathering and they started following Jesus. And Jesus started to show them what the kingdom of God looked like. Now, Mark's book isn't so much about Jesus' teachings. We've been in two weeks of Jesus' teachings, but it's very rare in Mark's book. Mark is an action movie. That's why I love Mark. Okay? Mark is a, it's all about action. What is Jesus doing? How is he showing the kingdom of God breaking in? And so he shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. So in the first three chapters, we see what the kingdom of God actually looks like. We get a glimpse into what this kingdom, this inbreaking kingdom through Jesus looks like. In chapter 1 through 3, the kingdom of God looks something like this. The calling of people to follow Jesus. Jesus calling people to follow him. The healing of people with a demonic presence. He starts casting out demons, people who are oppressed by demons. He starts to heal the sick. He's preaching the gospel. He's touching and healing lepers that are untouchable, that no one even went by, and he's touching them. He didn't get near them. He actually physically touched them. He started forgiving sin, to which they replied, who are you to forgive sin? And they forgave sin. And he was forgiving sin, and he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and he was healing on the Sabbath like a man with a withered hand. This is what we're shown of what the kingdom of God looks like. And this is why we're shown this. This is why Mark records what the kingdom of God looks like. Because demons dominate people. Illnesses make people less than whole. Nature threatens to destroy Humans oppress other humans, and religion suffocates. And what the inbreaking kingdom of God does is challenge every other claim to power. Everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order, the inbreaking kingdom of God brings freedom and liberation. That's what we're shown in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now in chapter 4, we get the language of the kingdom. Jesus starts telling us what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like this and like that. This is where Jesus starts to unpack, explain, and describe what the kingdom of God is. And that's why he says in verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? What shall we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable? So he's starting to explain and expound the kingdom now. I love that Jesus said this. He says, what are we going to compare the kingdom of God to? What what parable can we use for it? Jesus uses metaphors and similes and parables to describe the kingdom. He wants us to know what the kingdom of God is like. He wants us to know it. He wants us to understand. So when we say kingdom of God, that you guys understand it. And he shares these parables about what the kingdom of God is like. And so in these parables, this is what we'll see today about the kingdom of God, this inbreaking kingdom. The kingdom of God revealed, the kingdom of God concealed, and the kingdom of God explained. So we'll see it revealed, and then concealed, and then explained. So first of all, the kingdom of God revealed. First off, this is very, very important that you understand this. 
If you're uh, first time here or just starting to explore what it means to follow Jesus or believe in God or whatever, God is not trying to hide himself from humanity. God's not trying to hide himself from you. Nor is it that he's trying to hide the kingdom of God or his salvation from you and humanity. If you felt like God is hiding from you and all you're doing is trying to find God, the Bible teaches it's often the reverse. God is trying to reveal himself to you. He's pursuing you. However, this is the state of mankind, Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those full in, in, in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears, and we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. You're like, well, I'm, I've been seeking God. I want to know who God is. I've been trying to find him. Well, the Bible teaches it's actually no one that really seeks God. God seeks us. God is trying to find us. And the thing is, is that we come with all these things. Well, if God is going to reveal himself to me, he better look like this and like this and like that and fit into my box. This is such a graphic picture of humanity. It's not that we're trying to find God and he's hiding, but our sins have separated us from him. And Jesus comes to bring the salvation of God near. What Jesus has come to do is bring the salvation of God very near us. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the love of God, he is Emmanuel, God with us, God near us. Jesus has come to make God known. Jesus doesn't come to conceal the salvation of God. He comes to explain and exposit and expose the salvation of God. This is why he uses this parable. Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket? Why does somebody bring a lamp in? To be put under a bed? Now, you could notice a little bit, maybe not funny to us, but probably funny to the first century. Their humor is probably different. Jesus is very sarcastic. I, it's my favorite kind of humor. It's very, like, you don't bring a lamp in to put under a bed, do you? Now, they didn't have lamps like we have lamps. Their lamps were made of fire. So you don't bring a fire to put under a bed. That's stupid. You don't put it under a table. What do you do? You put it on a lampstand. That's what Jesus is saying here. You don't, when you bring a light in, you don't put it under a basket. It would ruin your house. You don't put it under a bed. It would hide the light. You put it on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, he says, let him hear. Last week, we said that Jesus, when he teaches in parables, not only does this parable have like this long-reaching, eternal state of your soul weight to the parable, but the parable actually is a parable about what's going on at that very moment. Last week, we said the parable of the sower. Jesus is on a boat in the sea, on the sea, as Mark describes it, and the people are on dirt, the same word used as soil, as Jesus uses in his parable, and he's teaching, and he's teaching a parable about teaching. And he's teaching a parable about scattering seed, and the seed is the word. And he's teaching a parable about hearts being like soil, and Mark says that the people are on the soil, but not Jesus. He's not on the soil. He's on the sea, which actually probably goes back to this psalm that says that God, like, hovers over the deep. And so he's actually scattering seed, teaching, 
And people are sitting on the soil, so he's teaching a parable about how people will forever hear the word of God, but also how people are hearing the word of God right then in that moment. So it's a parable about what's going on, and it's a parable about what will go on forever. Same thing is happening right here. Jesus asked if a lamp is to be brought in and put under a basket or under a bed. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp. I have not come to hide the light, but to reveal it. I have come to reveal the kingdom of God. Even the way this is worded in Greek points to this fact. It's literally worded closer to something like this. Does the lamp come in order that it might be placed under a bowl, under a bed? See how awkward that is? Lamps don't come into rooms. It's not like Pixar or something. A lamp just jumps in a room. It's not like that. Lamps don't come into rooms. Lamps are brought into rooms. But Jesus words this really weird. He says, did the lamp come into the room by itself? Jesus is saying, I didn't come into this world to hide God, but to reveal God. I didn't come into this world to make him more shady and more unknown. I've come, him to, I've come to make him known to everybody, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile, to the whole world. This lamp, Jesus, is not to be put under a bowl or under a bed. Jesus is not to be made subordinate to our other priorities in life. Jesus is not to be made periphery, but he's to be made supreme over all things, That is how we see God clearly, is when we exalt Jesus to the highest place by putting Jesus above everything else in life. Only then can can he illuminate the entirety of our rooms, of our lives. Only then can he reach the deepest, scariest places of our lives when we exalt him and that light is able to shine in all parts of our lives. Only by putting him on a lampstand can we see God and the kingdom of God clearly. God is not trying to hide himself from you. He wants to put himself on display in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is not like a shady accountant or a cheating husband, hiding something in order to keep it hidden forever. God is more like my parents were when I was a kid around Christmas time. When my parents would hide gifts, it wasn't to hide them forever. They wouldn't hide gifts in their room and go, you didn't find the gift this year, you'll never find it. They hid presents in their room because when I was a kid, I really, really sincerely believed in Santa Claus. I mean, sincerely, until I was like 14. (laughs) And I remember when my mom and dad got sloppy, and I realized they're Santa. And my parents would hide all the gifts in order to bring them out on Christmas. And then I get to open, and what was hidden on purpose is now revealed for that sake of that fun Christmas morning. When God hides something, or the Bible calls it a mystery, it's not to keep it hidden forever, but it's to reveal it at the right time. That's why God keeps things a mystery or hidden. God hides something in in order to reveal it. God hides so that at the right moment, he can reveal it to you. And then it takes faith on our part to keep believing in him. When we don't see clearly, we believe God is not playing hide-and-go-seek. God is hiding in order to reveal it to me at the right moment. 
If you're asking something from God, like, God has not given me the answer, there's a reason. God's not busy. He's not like, I have, another, I have a lot of other prayer requests to get to before I get to yours. I don't know if you know. <laughs> he's doing that because he's re- hiding something in order to reveal it later. If you've never seen how Jesus has come to bring you peace by the blood of his cross, or how he's come to reveal to you the salvation of the kingdom of God, and you're just barely seeing it, maybe the last several weeks, maybe even today for the first time, don't feel cheated. You see it because God is revealing it to you. Today is when God wanted you to see it. Today is like your Christmas. And when God is starting to reveal things to you. Jesus has not come to hide himself, the kingdom of God, or even his message. If God is not trying to hide it, then what is it? Okay, so I want to know it then. If God's not trying to hide the kingdom of God, would you please tell me what the kingdom of God is? Well, ironically, the first way Jesus explains the kingdom of God is by saying it's concealed. He's like, oh, I want you to know what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a seed underground. He's like, I can't see a seed underground. He's like, exactly. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain with the ear. Okay, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a lamp on a stand, but it's also like a seed that's buried. Which is it? It can't be both. But Jesus is saying it can't be one. Because the kingdom of God is simply too big to be one parable. It's both. And the thing is this. When Jesus shares about the kingdom of God, he uses a language that is naturally foreign to us. When he starts to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, he uses a language that is foreign to us. There is a little bit of a language barrier when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. When the language of the kingdom of God is used, there is a language barrier. Now, we live in San Francisco, a very international city. We know something. If you've traveled abroad or something, you know something about a language barrier. When my wife and I first moved to this city, um, we... um, there's this restaurant, Vietnamese restaurant, right down the street from my house that is so good. And my wife and I went, and we're ordering food, and I'm a bit of an idiot, and um, I'm ordering food, and, and I'm, I'm pointing, and she's like, what do you want to order? And I'm like, I want um, shaken beef. And she grabs a pen, she goes, chicken beef? I'm like, no, shaken beef. She's like, oh, chicken beef? I'm like, no, shaken beef, number 42. And then my wife just goes, wham, like nudges me right in the ribs. I'm like, what? She goes, she's saying shaken beef. And I look up, and she just looks at me like I'm an idiot. She's like, oh, my God, you're so dumb. The coolest thing is this. Ever since that moment, we've had this, the coolest relationship. This ban- Every time we go in this restaurant, there's this banter back and forth. She, like, tells me to get out of her store, and then um, I'm like, um, you know, I'm not going to tip you. And then she's like, you can't order. She told Tark the other day, ordered on the phone. He came in, and she said, you don't know how to order at all on the phone. You're a horrible orderer. And... So we had this wonderful like, relationship, but it started by like, this me being an absolute idiot. Now, I don't think that's much of a, a language barrier as it is I'm stupid, but we know something about this. When we try to communicate something and they're not getting it, we're like, no, it's like this. We're like, I don't understand what you're saying to me. When Jesus explains the kingdom of God, he uses a language that is so foreign to us that we don't understand it at first. We don't get it. He uses a language that there is an actual language barrier. The way the the kingdom of God moves and the way the kingdom of God lives and the way the kingdom of God breathes and operates is foreign to us. Our natural man understands self 
we don't understand the prideful, the prideless, the humble kingdom of God. We understand ourselves. William Temple, once the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said this, I am the center of the world I see, where the horizon depends on where I stand. Education might make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. So far, it is like climbing a tower, which widens the horizon for physical vision while leaving me still the center and standard of preference. This is the truth. This is why self-help books hardly ever work, because the common denominator in all self-help books is yourself. You're still the center of your world. The kingdom of God is altogether different. The way to go up in the kingdom of God is to go down. The seed is buried before it goes up. The way to life is by death. Nothing that doesn't die cannot be raised from the dead. That is the language of the kingdom of God. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to be rich, you have to give it all away. If you want to walk in freedom and forgiveness, you have to forgive. This is the language of the kingdom of God. This is a language that's foreign to us. You want people to tell you you will be rich by hoarding. You will be liberated by giving your flesh everything it wants the second it wants it. No, that's called slavery. And you'll never get rich that way because you'll never be satisfied. Rich is subjective to you. It all depends on how much you want and want and want. Jesus says the kingdom of God is actually opposite. The more you give, that's why he says the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. See, back then, in the first century, they would show up with, um, at, 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 at stores. And these stores had measures, like we had cups, and you would pay per measure. A dollar measure, two dollars a measure, whatever. Jesus is saying, imagine you bring your own measure, and you pay that same flat rate, but you get to bring your own measure. The measure that you bring will be measured to you. The way that you hear, the way that you pay attention will be the attention that you're paid. And so if you come to God with open heart and open mind and open ears, humbling yourself, that's how you hear. That is the language of the kingdom. That's why a lot of us don't get it. C.S. Lewis, at the very end of his book, Mere Christianity, says this, the very last paragraph to the book. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself, give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber, fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the end, in the long run, only hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. That's the language of the kingdom of God, and that is why some people absolutely miss it. But it is, the king, it is a language that goes down in order to get up. It's a language that dies in order to live. You can't see how God, this is why the kingdom of God is concealed, because people don't see it. The process of growth of the kingdom of God is subtle and underground and even grassroots, and it all points to Jesus. Can you believe that the kingdom of God advances through defeat? 
through crucifixion? Can you believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who was hanged on a tree, is indeed the judge of the living and the dead? That is what the kingdom of God says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the beautiful paradox of the gospel. So you would think that Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is likened to a shimmering mountain peak or purple sunsets or vast oceans, but he says the kingdom of God is like seeds. Seeds. This is the scandal of the incarnation. God disguised in common places. Isaiah would prophesy that the Messiah that would come would be nothing of physical, have no physical appearance that some people would go after him. He would have no majesty that we should look at him and no physical beauty that we should desire him. Maybe you haven't placed your faith and your trust in Christ because it seems so common, a bit ancient or archaic, a bit too simple. That is the kingdom of God. Jesus does not tell us how high and lofty God is, but how very near and present God is. This is the kingdom of God concealed to some who think it's too simple or too grassroots or too plain, but to others it's the wisdom and the power of God. This is what Jesus is saying when he just explains the kingdom using very common things. And lastly, the kingdom of God, he explains it in this last parable. Jesus explains it. And the way he explains it, it's like what Isaiah chapter 45 says. Isaiah 45 says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Now, I thought you're like, wait, you just said that God doesn't hide. God hides, and he loves to hide victory in defeat. God loves to hide strength in weakness. That's exactly what the cross of Jesus was. It looked like defeat of the greatest rabbi to ever walk in Israel, the public Roman execution of the supposed Messiah, the mocking and the beating of an innocent man, was actually the victory of God over sin, death, and Satan. In this last parable, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is like a great tree hiding in a tiny seed. The kingdom of God is like this giant, great tree, the greatest of all in the, in, in, that, are, that are in the garden hiding in this tiny, simple seed. I don't know how many people collect or watch seeds. Not many people do that. But they do admire trees. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a tree hiding in a seed. Verse 31 of Mark, it is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is about how God is planning his salvation. It's about God's salvation, God's great purpose of redemption. It's a mystery to most people today about how God has worked from Genesis to Revelation. 
It is the kingdom of God. See, the Old Testament is not so much about the history of the Jewish people as it is about God bringing into his purpose, into action, the great plan of redemption. God made the whole world. He made all that's in it, and we've sinned against him. And when we broke our relationship with God, and that relationship unraveled, all every, every other relationship unraveled. And what God did was he took one man and made him into a nation. One man, Abraham, and made him into the nation of Israel. And took that little nation of Israel and made it the least of all nations and said, through that nation, I will bless the world. And out of this little small nation, when, all, when this small nation was occupied by one of the greatest nations, Rome, a child was born in this little nation that was oppressed by another nation. A child was born. And that child became a boy who became a man who started to heal and to teach and to preach and to cast out demons and to take the long way home so he can sit and talk with a woman who had this string of abusive and broken relationships with men. And he rose little girls from their deathbed and he touched people with leprosy and he forgave prostitutes and whores and he called very self-righteous people to repent. And when they didn't repent, he called them spawn of Satan. And the religious leaders killed him. And through this death, we have life. Do you see how small scale the kingdom of God works? A small nation oppressed by a big nation is born a child who becomes a man who dies for the sins of humanity. And you're like, there's no way that little thing can save the entire world. But God says, that's my kingdom. That's how my kingdom comes in. It's so obscure It's not through advertisement. It's not through jumbotrons. It's not through this giant thing. It's small and subtle. And when you think, how do I live in this city? How do I live in this area? And actually do something for the kingdom of God. I feel like the city's way too big for God to do anything. It's a seed. And most of the stuff that you see is underground, and you don't even see it happening. But he's working. He's underground working. It's grassroots. It's working. It's hidden. It's working. And then one day, it sprouts. One day, it happens. One day, there's a great and awesome harvest, and you don't know where it even came from. The kingdom of God is like that. Jesus is that seed that died and went into the ground and brought up a great harvest, a harvest of souls. This is Jesus, and we must receive this kingdom like good soil receives a seed. And let the gospel of Jesus take its unstoppable, inevitable, inside-out work in our lives. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God that wants to be brought into our lives to absolutely change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask, God, that you you would make this kingdom come alive in us. It's so subtle. It's so, like, even almost blah, almost plain, almost too simple, God. Even as we talk about it, it's just hard for me to talk about it like, like in Second Chronicles or the book of Joshua. I mean, in the end, Lord, it's just, a, it's just still a bush. The seed becomes a bush. It's not like some great, glorious thing, but it is. And would you do this in our lives, Lord, together? Would you take the minority of... Um, people who walk with Jesus in this area, in this, in this city, and when you make the gospel come alive so deep in our hearts that we have a deeper love for this city, that we have a deeper love for Jesus, that we would 
humble ourselves and die to ourselves and believe in Christ, that we would know the way to life is through death, God. Do this in us. Do this subtle, humble work in our hearts, we pray. We turn to you, Lord, that we would have life. In Jesus' name, amen.